Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 20, No Stone Left Unturned. In today's episode, we are going to delve into the importance of embracing the full process in your child's training as a classical musician. Often when I have trial lessons, I encounter students who have been taught very well, but have seemingly skipped over major aspects of fundamental technique or training. This can be due to multiple things, and I think this happens particularly often with precocious and gifted children. As an immediate personal aside, Ava has always been a handful to teach and has had a propensity to move very quickly. It's been a real challenge to find traction and slow down while celebrating her love for music and performing. So I know it's not easy. On the parenting end of things, I think parents find themselves often balancing a multitude of factors while trying to preserve their child's interest level and enthusiasm for practice. They sometimes misstep or step over other things that require technical attention in an effort to almost keep the peace, so to speak. This can happen even under a teacher's supervision, but inevitably it will show up in their playing or in what they're comfortable learning and performing. So sometimes there is a lot of zigzagging going on with certain students, but somehow everything does need to be covered. For teachers, we face a lot of pressure from parents and students about what pieces they think they should be on already or what they would like to be playing next. It can be a very difficult balance to strike to maintain our pedagogical integrity while serving each individual child and their musical goals. I have frequently found myself embroiled in a negotiation about what pieces we should be doing and when with parents. So today we will talk about why it is important to not skip essential steps, how this can benefit kids in the long run, the challenges we face with students who are quick and precocious, and some strategies for parents, and maybe teachers too, for keeping everyone on track and excited to learn. FYI, this is a topic I have been asked to write about, and I am genuinely glad to be discussing it now. I'm currently in the middle of revamping some of my curriculum for my own students, including Ava, as it pertains to etude and caprice work. In my attempts to categorize and tag certain techniques and skill sets so that I can access files easier to prepare students for different challenges, it's really easy to lose steam. I'm trying to tackle an hour of this a day, but like most things, when you reaffirm the importance of something for yourself and for others, it can re-energize you to do it right. So I'm going to be writing this podcast for all of us. I've also been getting some really lovely mail about the podcast, and it has struck me that many parents who are taking all the necessary steps are listening, and that it's serving as a gentle validation for them to keep on keeping on. They need that nudge of support. It isn't easy to always be thorough and thoughtful and maintain a good mindset. Studio parents have a tough job for sure, and they are watching others sometimes skip over things and somehow skate by or still get the desired results 
while I know as a teacher this will not end well years down the line, in the moment that parent who leaves no stone unturned needs some reassurance. Reassurance that doing things deeply and thoroughly and thoughtfully is worth it in the end. And that instant gratification is, well, just that and nothing more. They need support to stay on the right path. We all do. As you can see, even by my opening, I'm going to give you all of my perspectives on this. Parent, teacher, former conservatory student, and for those of you paying attention to recent things, new faculty at the SFCM pre-college. So let's start with what I notice in trial lessons, even lately, and meeting new students. I think this is important because many teachers I spoke to last week encounter this, and it can be really surprising. A certain level of students seems to get very preoccupied with their pieces, and they eventually drop a lot of that fundamental work necessary for building and growing skill sets. It is interesting how many students I hear regularly who can play their pieces at a fairly high level but cannot play the three octave scales or arpeggios associated with it. I think in general, this happens because kids are increasingly busy these days and practice time becomes difficult to map out as they get older. Especially advanced students have auditions or competitions on a regular basis. So those pieces start to take priority because let's face it, those are the pieces they will be playing in front of people and could bring an embarrassing consequence if they aren't prepared well. So they're motivated to practice that rather than the fundamentals. Parents, too, are concerned with results, seating, prizes, building for college applications. So it's easy to lose sight of those fundamentals, even when we know that we shouldn't. But as a teacher, when I'm hearing kids audition, it leaves me wondering things which are fairly pedagogical in nature. I think to myself, hmm, if this kid could play the A minor three octave scale and arpeggios fluently, I wonder how it would impact the musicianship of their Bach A minor concerto. Bear with me while I explain my feelings on this. Here's how I think about it. Their ram, so to speak, is being used very heavily to make that concerto in tune and clean. It is compartmentalizing things, analyzing segments or finger placements without the necessary background, and trying to polish sometimes one note at a time in real time without fluid knowledge of the key they are playing in. There are patterns and scales in arpeggios, of course, rooted in music theory and mapped out on our fingerboards given the right amount of time and study. But because those aren't fluent yet, the hands are kind of recreating them on the fly, in the context of the concerto, sometimes by ear, one section at a time. This is taxing on anyone's brain. So if a student is playing the Bach concerto, as I just described, is there much room left in their energy or brains to devote to music making? How does it hamper their ability to feel joy in their own playing? And how does that lack of joy affect their excitement for picking up the instrument again that day or throughout the weeks ahead? Let's take a harder piece as an example straight from my old studio. 
Once, a student of mine was competing on the Saint-Saëns introduction in Rondo Capricioso. He knew this piece very well and had already won competitions using it as his solo piece. There was only one section we had even remote trouble with, and that was the section containing the double stops. Now, to be clear, he could play them in tune through diligent work, and he did. But while the rest of the piece was dripping with emotion and mood and storyline, the lyrical double stop section was flatlined. We tried to shape it and sculpt it, but it had measured success. He almost couldn't experience the music of it unless he was listening to a recording of his own playing. In real time, he was maxed out. All of his RAM was spent just ensuring the architecture of the left hand to get it in tune and managing the bow control for clear, beautiful sound. Turns out, before he was in my studio, he never did double stops hardly at all. He didn't try that beautiful trot melodious double stops book to learn to love a melody in double stops or teach the bow to sing through them. Intellectually, he understood when I explained to him that the composers inserted double stops to make the melody soar even higher or richer in texture, but he couldn't physically feel it happening while he played it. In my mind, he was being cheated, and then by extension, we all were. We worked hard, but I couldn't quite lift that one section to the level of the rest. Was it still amazing? Of course. Did he get it eventually? Probably in review a few years later. And he was one of the strongest students I worked with for sure. But could it have been even better if he hadn't zoomed past those things before? Again, yes. And even though I think it's common for parents and teachers to focus on how such a thing will impact your score or results in an audition, I think it's more meaningful to speak of the missing joy we are stealing from them by not taking them through the necessary training. He wanted to feel it, desperately, but he couldn't. And not because he wasn't working hard enough in that period of time, but because of something that wasn't enforced in his studies earlier. Was it the teacher? The student shirking responsibility? Or maybe the parent not prioritizing things in practice as assigned? It could be all three. But what I want people to focus on is not the blame game. I want them to take a long minute and think about what he missed out on as a young artist. He deserved to feel the beauty of that writing. And remember that even if you have no intention of becoming a soloist or ever trying for an international competition, you might still want to fully enjoy, let's say, the second movement of the Mendelssohn Concerto. You can't really escape the double stops that flow through the development, nor should anyone want to. They are deeply intense and beautiful, and they are miraculous writing that should be fully celebrated. This takes diligence, years of it. Let's have some real talk now for those of you who have children competing and going for the gold. In your gut, you already know this, but let me validate it for you. There will always be someone who has done that thorough foundational work. 
They have been diligent and gone through that whole trot book I mentioned when they were young, and they practiced their Carl Flesh every chapter, possibly every morning. They went through countless etudes and caprices systematically along with exercises and supplements to build, strengthen, and elasticize their technique. Some kids will do it willingly, and others will fight it off and on for years, but many will do it. And doing it for years sounds vastly different than doing it for months. So by the time they are all auditioning for conservatory or in big competitions, we can hear it. Ever seen a violinist who plays like the violin is growing out of their arm? This is the difference I see mostly as a judge and a teacher when a talented child has been properly trained. That might be a hard thing to think about right now if you're just at the beginning or in the middle of your journey, but it's still true. It's more than just playing clean or in tune. It's about being one with your instrument. So I'm here today trying to encourage you to be diligent now and fall on the right side of that equation. There are no shortcuts, and there's such pride at the end when things are done well. I've had parents and students try and find shortcuts and insist that they can get it like it is something they can cram for later. They are sometimes hyper-smart kids with startlingly high IQs and likely parents to match. Academically, they have perfect test scores and are very high achieving across the board. So I see why they would start thinking in this direction. But IQ will not be enough and neither will talent to succeed in classical music. These are factors for sure, but they won't be the deciding one. What I'm talking about today is the time spent learning deeply, diligence in motion, the building and nurturing of a disciplined routine in the pursuit of excellence. So what do parents need to do to ensure this fundamental training happens correctly? I concede that some children are more pliable than others with this type of work early on. Ava can be very hard to teach sometimes, in my opinion, but... She loves puzzles and patterns and marking similarities and score and ringtones. She loves things that validate what she already knows how to do or things that she's learning already in school. I can ploy her with marbles and make games out of any etude and keep her interest. If I find duo etudes, we're really in luck because she loves playing with me. My point is most children have a currency of some sort. And no, I'm not recommending full-on cash bribery, so don't worry. But if I say to a young student that I want them to go on a treasure hunt and find that same set of notes reoccurring 10 times on the page in different octaves, they will sometimes light up. If I hand it to them while apologizing that this one's a bit boring, but it will teach you spiccato, they wilt before their violin even hits their shoulders. So finding currency is important. Framing something with enthusiasm matters. If you didn't listen to my episodes on practice primers for different age groups, now would be a great time. And of course, it should be said that some things that are needed in training young people aren't really carnival rides, no matter how much we would like to frame them to be. And that's okay. 
I hear parents saying a lot that they don't want to force their kid to do something they don't like in practice. So, whoops, this didn't get worked on very much, and neither did that. But this doesn't make sense to me as a fellow parent, because my kids go to bed earlier than they would ever like, floss their teeth while complaining, and have to do homework they don't always enjoy. All for their good, right? If they want to be a musician, there will be things in this category too, so don't feel guilty. Their passion will contain things that they don't enjoy doing, but those very things will enable them to reach greater levels of fulfillment with their music. Having said that, some etudes or caprices are more enjoyable than others too, and they will teach the same skill sets. So make sure you're with a teacher that embraces fundamental studies and knows them like the back of their hand. They should know which ones approach what skills and be keen to learn about your kid so that they can inspire and appeal to them. Ava's teacher is so quick to name an etude or exercise that goes with a skill set she is learning. It is seriously impressive. Some skills are acquired easily and some need reinforcements. A good teacher can name two or three etudes out of different books and find them for you. Newsflash, they're all online. They can keep you on them happily for a month to master something like Collet or Spiccato. Why pull from different books, you ask? Because those might be the ones in the right key or the ones which they think have the brightest melodies that suit your child's musical leanings. While each book might have a few etudes covering the same skills, you will find a better set of choices by pulling from multiple sources. And after you've been teaching etudes and caprices for years, you start to keep track of them in your own mind. In my opinion, the best teachers don't hand you etudes or exercises as punishment or morning gruel or with an apology. They hand them to you as a matter of course. And they go through them with you right then, making sure you understand their value and purpose and how to practice them at home. They hand you the right ones, the ones that target skills beautifully and in a context you might even enjoy. Just like the toothbrush that lights up or plays a tune or the bedtime story they love before their earlier than usual bedtime, maybe the cheese you put over the broccoli, you get the idea. I don't believe that children have to be miserable in order to receive their fundamental training. In fact, I'd rather they be happy and curious because that's the association I am looking for them to have with their instrument and with music. Remember me mentioning the Trot Melodious Double Stops book? Some of those melodies really sing and they're beautiful. Why? Because Josephine Trot was a composer a vastly overlooked one, probably because she was female. But in any case, you might find yourself whistling some of those. Kids love them. And when I say that, I mean to tell you, I've been teaching for decades on those and every single kid has loved playing them. Should you be studying your double stops in a system like Flesh too? Of course. That takes me nicely to my next topic. What about scales and arpeggios or double stop training? These need daily regimen attention too, but they also need to be done in the lesson. I had a parent once suggest we never spend time on these in lessons. They just wanted to go over the repertoire with me and do the rest at home. This won't work in the long run. 
Sure, there might be a few lessons here and there where we feel we're in a crunch for something, but I feel we need to take the time to hear students playing scales and parents need to understand why this is valuable. If a scale and arpeggios are fluent, which is the goal, right? Hearing it in lessons can serve as a platform to refine pitch, bow hand, bow technique. The possibilities are endless. There are etudes that do this too. They serve as platforms. A comfortable platform is very valuable when you're learning new techniques. I can use a scale to teach sounding point, martelet, vibrato, or even work on posture. Also, scales and arpeggios are mainstays in auditions everywhere. Doing them regularly ensures good placement in youth orchestras and festivals in the summer. To me, though, it's just plain old good hygiene. If you know your scales and arpeggios cold, you can learn concerti and showpieces so much quicker, it's astonishing and very exhilarating to experience as a young player. If you are one of those students or parents who feels they need to build their repertoire quicker, ace your scales and arpeggios and etude work. Here's a memory from my conservatory days. I still remember studying the Saint-Saëns Concerto for the first time and getting to a four octave arpeggio and just hearing it fly straight out of my hand, sight reading. I had already worked on them, and so it felt like they were just there, waiting to be used. I see a lot of techniques in this way, and the following analogy has been a good one in my studio. I've just started using it with Ava. I tell her she has her fancy cords in the closet right now, but we are keeping them tidy and getting them ready to wear out on the town. Soon, they will be coming out of the cord closet and on vivid display. We should be tending and gardening and growing techniques and skills for their big debuts, right? It's exciting, and it pays off because the body knows them and is ready to incorporate them without fear. Better yet, the body is ready to incorporate them with joy. So teachers should be going over fundamentals in class, and parents should be supportive of this and expect it. But also, parents need to ensure they are happening thoughtfully and with goals in mind at home. When parents ask me what they can do to ensure their child does their fundamental work every day and gets thorough training from them, I ask them first how they are doing fundamentals at home already. Like I said before, to me, it's like brushing their teeth. We wouldn't be fine with them skipping that or entertain a lot of conversation about why they don't like it. We would need them to do it correctly, and we would have plenty of reasons why. Fundamentals are daily musts for serious musicians. By entertaining excuses or complaints from our kids, we are feeding into the false notion that any success can be had without them. You can build from 15 minutes to 25 to 45 in time on them so that they can be done in a healthy disposition, You can add sand timers, metronomes, stickers, charts, and games to make it more palatable, but it does have to be done. So to me, it's a mentality that needs to be intact at home. Keep in mind, too, that you shouldn't be playing the same scale over and over again. Acquaint yourself as the parent with what they should be doing in their scales so they aren't just doing them halfway there. A student studying scales and arpeggios should be delivering them in tune, smooth, with their bow distributed, at a tempo, 
The list goes on. Maybe in rhythms or in a specific bowing. Maybe you're doing an acceleration exercise. As a teacher, I can't get to the next stage in things if assignments and scales are stagnating. Children should be kept on their toes with their fundamentals both in lessons and at home. If your child is sleepy doing these in practice, they aren't going to be serving them with progress. Scales and arpeggios aren't appearing in showpieces in a boring, plain format. They're being set on fire. So we need to associate them with that energy too. I like to see students bright-eyed and bushy-tailed with their scales and arpeggios, so I know they will sound bright and energetic in their vinyaski. On a personal note, if you follow Ava and I on Instagram, you know that we do violin breakfast every day for about an hour. She coined that term when she was in kindergarten because she felt bad that the violin didn't have any time like we did at breakfast. It's rare that we do anything but fundamentals in there. If she finishes her fundamentals early, we might have 10 minutes for a favorite review or repertoire piece. We've been doing some version of this since she was five, so she's used to it, and she doesn't ask if she can do anything else. This is just routine for her, like brushing her teeth. Any habit takes time, so if you're late to the fundamental party, just start now with some incentives for the first week finished or for the first 30 days of scales you commit to. If you feel you don't have enough direction on scales and fundamental training from your teacher, ask. I can almost promise you that they will be delighted to hear this. In fact, ask them if they will devote an entire lesson to it once a month so you know exactly what you can do in that portion of your practice and really get some bang for your buck. Another thing that tends to be skipped over sometimes is a correct sequence of repertoire. So let's talk about that a bit. I spoke to a number of teachers this past week and we all see the same thing. We see loads of students playing romantic literature and they haven't touched any of the main classical concerti yet. This honestly baffles me, but I think in large part it happens when teachers and parents succumb to the urge to rush through the repertoire in search of something they feel would be more competitive for auditions or competitions. One thing that has helped me now that I have been teaching a long time is to ask parents to supply me with a rep list immediately as they enter my studio. I need to know what they have studied and what they have performed, especially with very precocious children. There's the possibility of what I mentioned earlier, some zigzagging in their training. So if they switch to me mid-zig, I kind of need to know about it. This helps me see what needs to happen next and if things have been skipped over. I don't blame anyone if things have been skipped. I just get to work. I know from years of this that it isn't productive to begrudge anyone in these circumstances because there are entirely too many factors at play. It could be a combination of things that causes things to get skipped, and none of it is important if we can get back on track. The classical concerti frequently get skipped over because there is a common belief that it doesn't compete well. This isn't really true, of course, but if you subscribe to this to the extent you don't study them, you will pay an extremely high price later. There will always be a round in international competitions or top-tier conservatory auditions that you need to pass featuring a Mozart concerto or a classical work. This is standard, and if you don't pass that round, you don't even get to play your romantic larger work. 
So I like to remind parents of this now. Here's some real talk for studio parents. If teachers are glossing over these things, they aren't really looking at the long haul very carefully for you. This would disturb me as a parent. Granted, they might just be waiting for you to pick up the slack a little bit at home, but perhaps they are hoping you deliver prizes with fancier pieces for their reputations right now. I certainly hope not. Or maybe they're unaware of the importance of the techniques and skill sets learned in these works. All things absolutely necessary for the larger ones. Refinement of sound, color, pitch, texture, articulation, fine listening skills. You simply can't skip these in good conscience. Nor can you just quickly go over them in a matter of weeks and then move ahead. They contain information and skills your young artist needs to carry with them. What about lyrical works or sonatas? These also don't appear as often in auditions for placements or competitions, but they are crucial to a young artist's development, not just learning them, but performing them too. You shouldn't skip lyrical works or sonatas in favor of faster, flashier pieces, even if your child voices a preference. Again, this is not the blame game, because I have seen all three sides of the equation make that mistake. But no violinist works eventually as a soloist if they cannot produce a beautiful, unique tone and spin a gorgeous lyrical phrase. Sometimes children will avoid the very thing they need the most. And I have seen children who struggle and avoid these skill sets end up truly brilliant at them, to the point where it becomes their best soloistic attribute. So not wanting to do them, not being drawn to slower pieces, or an affinity for flashier ones, doesn't mean they can't or won't learn lyrical pieces beautifully or achieve a very finely textured, polished sonata. This is where both parents and teachers need to work together to inspire and help a child do what needs to be done at the time it should be. It isn't something you would ever regret, and it also shouldn't be up for debate. So why else do we tend to skip over things or have trouble staying on track? Well, where parents are concerned, I think there's a pretty common feeling of being behind or having to compete with others in the studio paired with a belief that things are even more competitive than ever in the music industry now. And feelings or perceptions are powerful. They affect us from our core, and our kids pick up on them, and it can change their trajectories in music. Cue panic. And parents talk to other parents, and the feeling somehow can spread because it's hard not to make comparisons. If so-and-so's parent is concerned they aren't on track, and I know my child is behind them in the sequence of literature, we must be sunk, right? This is something other teachers wrote me about, hoping that I would address it in a podcast. Here are some of the examples of what they've been hearing. We are really behind, so we really want to catch up and learn these bigger pieces now. We need to audition for Allstate even though the music is too hard, but we're building our resume for private school applications. She really loves this piece she heard so-and-so play at the recital. Can she possibly skip to it? 
I just know it will motivate her to practice. The level of classical music is higher now in high school and college, so we need to move faster to stand out. Do any of these sound familiar to you? I know that I have heard some version of all of them. First of all, I don't perceive the level of player to be higher now. This is a very strong perception amongst some, and when I say strong, I don't mean because it's backed up by facts. I say strong because it causes a lot of fear and misplaced emotion. I think the technical aspects of players might be slightly higher now than 25 years ago, but not enough to warrant a panic in parents. And I think the artistry level is overall lower these days. I think the artistry is lower because people are panicking and going too fast with technique, and then their RAM is full and they cannot emote, as I described earlier. They've missed some steps in their haste to catch up with a phantom level or speed of learning. So yes, there are younger players able to play big pieces, but they are being put on them too quickly sometimes, so they never really learn how to truly emote, and then they burn out. I don't see the same number of truly unique, beautiful players hitting the music world these days, and it concerns me. It tells me we're missing steps as parents and teachers, and it's one of the reasons I started the podcast. Teachers can be too ambitious, and so can parents and students. We need to take a breath and get back to doing things deeply. Yes, it takes more time, but everyone does get to where they are headed eventually. One thing that Ava's teacher has said to me, which has stuck in my head, is the cream always rises to the top. But also, I think to myself, a watched pot never boils. If the energy you are leading with is hurry up. How does it affect the pace of things and what we end up with? If you could somehow transport yourself into the future and could see that it all worked out, how would that change not what you're doing now necessarily, but the energy you are putting out while doing it? As for comparisons between students in studios, Children will take the lead from parents and teachers on this one. Constructive comparisons can be useful if made carefully by parent or teacher, but it's a fine line. And every kid will move through the literature and training at their own pace. You may not be able to really compare individual gifts for many years. So especially at the beginning of training and also at the intermediate level, this is a time to celebrate your own pace and build community through peer support at studio events and group classes. Comparison breeds competitive ugliness in studios, and it encourages young artists to eventually isolate and become islands where they cannot receive support as easily. This is truly damaging and long-lasting because they will need the openness and support of their peers and community later and on a deeper level. Music is made with other people for other people. It is rarely had on an island. At international competition, I promise you it doesn't matter if you hit the finals at 18, 21, or 24. It just doesn't. If you audition for the Chicago Symphony, they don't know anything about you because it's behind a screen. 
Comparisons are hurtful, and they won't matter at the end of the road. Also, as a teacher, if I were to agree with someone in their assertion that their child were far behind, the answer would never be to skip over anything and move faster. It would be to pare down the rest of their extracurricular schedule and buckle up for some hard work ahead. For our last part of the podcast, let's talk briefly about how we prepare our repertoire and how sometimes this too can cause missteps or skipping over steps crucial in our training. I try as a teacher really hard to teach full concerti. I think it is important for works to be learned in full in general. So that includes concerti and sonatas. I realize there are large works where the difficulty between movements is rather disparate, and so this can cause a problem while students are developing. But in those cases, I generally wait until the hardest movement can be achieved. Or sometimes I will even start a concerto backwards, learning the last movement first, to give some time to develop some skill sets for movement number one. That said, violinists are really fortunate that there is a vast repertoire to choose from. I subscribe to the idea that if you don't learn all the movements, you don't really know any one movement in clear context because it fits into the rest of the concerto in a specific way. I certainly have my students perform movements separately as they learn them, But then I try and have them perform the concerti in full, too. Same thing for sonatas, Bach, and large chamber works. Especially for young artists who then continue to a concert career, this can be very useful to them to have full works. It also takes a different kind of discipline and focus to present full works and for students to build that early is very valuable in my view. I'm still learning new works to this day and preparing them thoroughly and by memory. When I was under management for solo work, I couldn't list things in my repertoire that I had not learned or performed in full. It would have been dishonest to do so. The more full works I had, the more marketable I was. This was both for recital literature as well as obviously concerti literature. How about memorization? I see a growing trend with young artists not memorizing for stage. For sonatas, that's one thing, but for concerti in most cases, I think it is best to memorize and especially as a student. I have played modern works with orchestras as a soloist with music, and I've also played them without. I prefer without because I was trained well to memorize and I know how to do it. I think we need to train them how so that if there is a choice, they can make it thoughtfully. To some, this is an added layer of work that they would rather avoid. It may take a few tries in concert to perform something successfully by memory as a student, and this is normal in my opinion and spurs on the necessary training for score study and analyzation. Once, I had another violinist, a very accomplished one, ask me about memorization because he had trouble in that department. I told him I did a copious amount of score study for harder works and that this had helped me. He responded he wasn't sure this was necessary if you were talented enough, though, right? This, I think, wasn't meant as an insult to me at the time, but rather an internal cry for help in avoiding the hard work. It kind of made me chuckle at the time because, no, talent won't help you with memorization, It is about score study, and that takes time and instruction. Even now, Ava is starting to analyze scores for form, intervals, chord progression. It really helps. 
when her ears falter, her analysis backs her up. There is comfort sometimes, too, in knowing that hard work is the factor we need. Now, I know, some kids will seem to memorize easier, but when you're talking about a 45-minute concerto, they will all need to study score, or they are risking the whole kit and caboodle, if you ask me. And I'm not interested in hearing someone often prove me wrong on stage, playing from memory with no score study. Because that means they don't know the whole work inside and out. By studying the score, it really adds to their interpretation. And without studying it, it makes it more shallow. When I was in conservatory, I carried pocket scores with me everywhere. As an adult, when I did solo work, I carried with me kind of a Kinko's made booklet that had the solo part, the full score, and the piano part all attached. This allowed me to be anywhere working on my concerto. Some of you might be thinking, hmm, learning whole works, memorizing, and doing score study, all of this will slow things down a bit, right? Well, this podcast is about making sure we don't miss things along the way. This podcast is about helping your child for the long haul. So you will find that a lot of what teachers believe in ensures that you won't miss essential elements in your training. But I think these things I just mentioned about memorization and score are more about the basics that need to be ingrained and how we do our work. Their importance shouldn't be questioned, really. All professional musicians learn full works and study scores. To close our podcast today, here are some extra tips on how to really enhance a thorough and deep training for your young classical musician. Go to more live concerts so you can hear works in full and feel inspired to learn them. Devote 15 minutes a day to score study and marking things in music like parallel sections, ringtones, half steps, cues for chamber music, chord progressions, all of it. Sign up and go to group classes where kids learn together like a think tank and motivate each other to learn more in detail. Explore summer festivals where your child will meet more kids like them to reinforce the discipline and enthusiasm for effective practice. Prioritize and voice pride for fundamental and thorough training. This is a big one. If you hear a clean scale or a set of arpeggios, a metronome ticking, or you see an etude book hit the stand, tell your child how proud you are about the integrity of their work. Work ethic is a huge factor in classical music. Talent will not work on its own. So be vocal and try to connect with your child about what makes this fundamental training important or useful to them. If you hear them doing their scale in spiccato, and then later they nail their piece, which is also in spiccato, articulate clearly how you see that connection between their hard work and their success in that technique. And finally, if you want to really bump up your training a few notches, consider two lessons a week with one being reserved for technique. Many big teachers I know do two lessons a week for this reason. I did when I was a teenager. One is entirely for fundamental training and the other is for repertoire. If you can invest in this, do it now. More than anything though, make a decision today that you will not skip anything. 
that every morsel of training will be essential and embraced by you, the parent, so that we, the audience, get to hear the beautiful, unique voice your child possesses and experience music through their ears. Parents are really powerful in this equation, and I believe that they have the ability to change who we see on stage in 25 years. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect. Let's connect.